Spanning the nerd world and feeding your fandom. Crash landed. From comics to video games. From the cinematic universe to television. Connecting you to the biggest stars in the industry. Something out there had discovered us. It's time for the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Here's your host, James Witham. Because sometimes it's good to know the man behind the ring. It's episode 263 of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. I'm James Witham. I'm going to be talking about Tolkien, of course, the movie about J.R.R. Tolkien, with director Dom Karukowski this week. going to ask him about, you know, the inspirations for the movie, what made this a good choice, a whole bunch of things like that. Plus, there's a big thing with Fathom Events that's going to be going on on May the 7th that you could be a part of. We'll talk about that as well. It was a big week, though, wasn't it? Avengers Endgame, the Battle of Winterfell has already happened. We'll talk about all that with spoilers, a little something extra as well. Big this week in Geektainment and some nerd news to talk about. But of course, comics come first. It's what we're reading on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. My name is uh, Liam Sharp. I draw Wonder Woman. I co-founded Mayfire. And I'm a dear and close friend of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Slide out that long box, fire up the tablet and the laptop, whatever you're reading on, it's time for what we're reading, and we're going to start out with something that might surprise you, if you know me, actually. It's Deceased, D-C-E-A-S-E-D, number one from DC Comics, Tom Taylor on the writing, Trevor Harrison, Stefano Guadiano, and James Heron on the art, Rain Barreto on the colors, Saeed Timofante on the letters, and of course the covers by Greg Capullo and Fco Placencia. Now... The reason I say that might surprise you if you know me is because I'm not a big fan of the whole zombie genre or, or stuff that is even kind of related to that. And I, I was so happy that The Passage, the TV series, broke the mold on that. So I was a little hesitant going into this, but I'm such a big fan of Tom Taylor's work and his writing. I was like, you know what? I trust Tom. Let's see what we've got going on. On this one. So basically, the Justice League has just stopped a major invasion from Darkseid on Earth. Now, the problem is, is it almost seems to wrap up a little bit too easy. Now, of course, going to be spoiler free in this review, so I'm going to have to dance around this just a little bit. And it's not long before we find out what da- what Darkseid was really after on Earth. Now, it's not often that Darkseid makes any mistakes. But this was a big one. That much I can tell you without spoiling anything. Obviously, you know that there's an infection, right? But how it happens and how it spreads is very, very interesting. Now, this is one of those situations where the kind of things are already out of control before anybody even knows what's going on. And to the scale that it's out of control in such a short amount of time is pretty epic. And I mean Justice League epic. That is the reason that the League is involved here instead of just Batman or just Superman. That much I could tell you. Now, we do get to see the infected in this issue, but we're not really sure if there's any real endgame other than survival for those that aren't infected, or we don't know what the infected, if they have some sort of a, of a mission of any kind other than just being infected. So that that is yet to be seen so far. I mean, we kind of get hints of how you know everything how the infection came about we kind of get hints at what was what was the end game for dark side but we don't really know now that everything has kind of gone to hell what's really happening here now 
Who patient zero is and who we see get infected early on, names that you might recognize, definitely catches your attention. This is some worthwhile stuff early on in this first issue. That much I can tell you. And it, it remains to be seen who else is getting infected. We, we get a couple, but we don't really get the full scope of what's going on here. We do know how bad it could get. Though, and that's the crazy part. It's already terrible. It could actually get worse. Now, I really love how the art in this book was actually split up between the artists I mentioned. They took different pages, different sections of the book. I thought it enhanced the change in the setting where we were in the book. And when things changed, the art changed as well. So I thought that that was really neat. This isn't necessarily a zombie story either, by the way, but it's certainly kind it feels like one. We're not really talking about zombies here necessarily. But, I mean, that's the closest comparison that I can really give you. Now, what the infection actually does really doesn't break too much new ground, but how it gets dispersed does. How it finds its way around does. And it's it's kind of really interesting modern take on things. And, and you know, it's it's kind of freaky. You know, it kind of makes you want to not do the thing that you do most of the day, every day. When you see what happens, the paranoia sort of gets to you. And in a story like this, I think that that's kind of part of the point. You want the paranoia to get to your reader, right? So surprisingly enough for me, this is a pull for me. And and going in, knowing that this was kind of a zombie story, I didn't know what to expect. But I'm very interested in what's going on. And I, I think that what Tom's done here, what Tom Taylor's done is is really really neat and a really nice twist on the genre so i i'm bringing on man i'm ready for more deceased and we've got another d book starting here descendant number one this time from aftershock comics stephanie phillips doing the writing there yevgeny bornyakov on the art lauren aff on the colors and Tor- troy Paturi on the colors i mean on the letters excuse me wando on the cover too by the way now, the story begins with a senator, Senator Miller, who's kind of running for president. Now, just before he's about to leave for his big speech, his child gets abducted. Now, a ransom note is left, and a strange symbol left behind with it as well. Now, the story also follows a man named David, who is a big conspiracy theorist. He has a vlog, and yeah, you can only imagine you know, what we're dealing with. Although, he doesn't... The I, I love that in the art in this book doesn't depict him as this whacked-out you know, crazy lunatic conspiracy theorist, like with crazy hair and all this random clothing that doesn't seem to make sense given the seasons that they're in. No, he just looks like a normal dude that just happens to have all these crazy conspiracy theories. Or are they crazy? Mm-hmm, that's the whole point, right? It, right, right? Okay, now it's clear that David will go to great lengths to get people's attention from something that he does in this book. It's one person in particular, which is kind of like the undercurrent of his story. Now, the kidnapping investigation, unfortunately, not going very well, but then there's a possible revelation, and David is the one that has it. Now, he's not part of the investigation or anything. He just kind of sees this on the news. He sees the symbol, and he thinks it might be connected to a very historical, and when I say historical, I mean real-life event that happened in our history. Not going to spoil that for you, but you might be able to peg it if you know your history. Now, the first issue actually ends with something that makes the investigation even more important now. It's like upping the ante. It's like pushing more chips in the middle of the table. So it's very, very interesting, especially the choices that are being made for this. It's very, very intriguing why the choices of who's involved 
And man, that is a great tap dancing act, I must say, to not spoil anything. Now, the art is so good in this book, you can actually see the definition in people's faces and bone structure at times. Not like every panel, but there's times where it's like, man, the art and the shading and the colors here are so good. It really adds to the book's tone of realism. And that's, you know, you you feel like you're watching a really good drama series, right? That this is the opening salvo of that. And you're like, okay, I know what's going on now. They didn't waste any time kind of setting the stage. Now the rest of it's just going to be, okay, what do we do from here? How do we further this story? And how do we get to the end of this story? So it's really, really interesting. And I think that Stephanie Phillips did a great job at, at hooking readers on the story early. Didn't have to spend a whole lot of time on backstories of the characters. She adds a little bit of intrigue to a couple of the characters as well, where at least she's making you think they might be important. Maybe they are, maybe they're not. And that's the whole point. You just do this subtle little thing, and you start to wonder, the, you know, you the conspiracy theorist in your own head starts to go, okay, so is this person going to be important? Is this person involved? So I love that. Anytime you do a story like this, you have to do that or you lose me. I don't know about you, but I have to have that element as a part of these stories. So good luck for me this week. Another poll. So a couple of books that you're going to want to add to your collection. Descendant number one from Aftershock Comics. And make sure you're getting Deceased number one from DC as well. And beyond too, by the way. That's going to do for what we're reading up next. We've got a ton of geek tainment to discuss. We'll start with a spoiler-filled review of Avengers Endgame. That's next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Jason Lyles from Rampage the Movie, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Well, the hashtags have certainly settled, but what about the dust? That's right. Our spoiler-filled review of Avengers Endgame is happening right now. I think I need to say spoiler-filled again. There will be spoilers from here on out for Avengers Endgame. If you haven't seen it yet, then I suggest you skip ahead. Because, yeah, we're going to be spoiling some stuff. Now, this is probably one of, if not the most popular movie ever. So, I'm guessing you've seen it. You don't need me to rehash the entire movie for you. You don't need me to tell you what happens. You don't need me to do any of these things. I mean, I might still cover it somewhat when I'm talking about this. But this isn't one of those times where I'm just going to sit here and rehash the entire movie. As a matter of fact, if you want to hear my quick thoughts, my spoiler-free thoughts last week's show, I gave them to you during Nerd News because I had already seen it. So this is going to be one of those things where I'm going to talk about stuff that I couldn't talk about last week because it's full of spoilers. And the first thing I want to talk about is just the lack, complete lack of hope at the beginning of this movie. Although I do love that Carol Danvers, we've got Captain Marvel, just says, yeah, I'm going to go kill Thanos now. Just so matter-of-factly like it's that easy like she's going to go kill Thanos. But you know what? Maybe it is that easy. Because when they find him, he's in that weakened state, right? We don't really know what happens to Thanos after the snap, right? Well, now we do. He gets pretty messed up from the energy that comes off of the gauntlet. And then we find out he's destroyed the stones. And I'm like, really? Now, you know the movie's not going to end there because it's three hours long. And how could it end there, right? And that's why it kind of took the sting away from... Them killing Thanos, or actually Thor killing Thanos. He cuts his head clean off, and, you know, you gasp for a second, and then you think, okay, hold on a second. You're not just going to get rid of Thanos that quickly, that easily, 
at the beginning of this movie, and it's not going to play out at some point later on. So, I mean, for a second there, I was shocked. But then after that, it's like, okay, yeah, there's no way that this makes sense. Now, I didn't realize there was going to be such a big time jump in the beginning of the movie either. So you go five years. So it's been five years, and everybody seems to kind of like have given up, moved on, whatever. You know, who's gone is gone, what's done is done. And Cap leading that support group, I thought that that was really interesting because he's trying to help people deal with this and move on with their lives for people that, you know, just kind of get snapped out of it, that aren't in it anymore. And as somebody who was kind of responsible for not being able to A, stop that, or B, bring anybody back in all those years, for him to be able to do that, I thought was was really, really you know strong on his part because obviously it still weighs heavily on his mind. It still weighs heavily on Natasha's mind, on a lot of their minds. Not all of them, but some of them. And the one that it doesn't was Tony Stark. That's right. Of course, you know that the, he gets brought back. Captain Marvel flies up there, flies the ship back, and everything is okay. Well, not okay, but you know what I mean. Tony is back. So you you really knew, again, he wasn't going to die that early on in the movie. And, and you know, I know the trailers kind of gave us, you know, kind of a hint that he might die up there in that ship, but you knew that wasn't going to happen, right? But then we see that Tony's made a family with Pepper, right? He's got a daughter now, the whole I love you 3000 thing, which is everywhere at this point. And he doesn't want to come back to fix this. That's just it. When they when they actually come and find him after, you know, Scott Lang gets out of the quantum realm, which, by the way, a rat walking across and kind of hitting a button, and then all of a sudden he gets zapped out of the quantum realm. At first I thought, you know, that's kind of hokey. And then I thought, you know what, that's hilarious, actually. Because that's something that could actually happen, right? This This is one of those things that could happen on accident. You know, I sat there and racked my brain after Ant-Man and the Wasp. Like, how's he going to get out of this if they got dusted away? Who's going to know he's there? Complete accident. That's how we're going to know that he's there. And then when he presents the whole time travel thing to everyone, you know, you got to bring Tony in. And when they do, he's like, no, no, I don't want to do this. And what I thought was interesting was what brought him back was not anything related to necessarily you know, helping people who lost someone or anything like that. And I'm not saying this was a selfish move, but I really thought it was interesting was that he sees that picture of Peter Parker in his kitchen, just a simple thing, he's doing dishes. And that's the thing where he went, you know what, I can't let this kid down. I've got to try and bring him back. And that's what kind of brings him back into the fold. That's what makes him risk everything, his entire family, basically, is to bring Peter back. Now, maybe he sees Peter and he realizes, well, okay, Peter meant something to me, so think of everybody else who has that same thing going on for them, and, you know, there was a larger reason for him doing this, obviously. But to risk his family like he did, and he said, this this is not a risk that I could take. Everything has to be exactly the way it is. We just bring everybody back. And then there's the whole, well, is that even an option? We come to find out that it is an option. I love the hilarious comparison to Back to the Future and how, you know, everything time travel related in that movie's BS, which, you know, kind of crushes me a little bit, much as I love Back to the Future. So I'm just going to let them both live. I'm going to let them both live on their own little explanations, and I'm just, I'm just going to pretend that that never happened. Now, are we cool with that? Can we do that? All right, so we'll move on with our lives now. So, and then from there, it's the, okay, you figure out you got to go get the stones before they're destroyed. So then that makes logical sense, right? And they've only got but so many PIM particles. But then you've got to go collect the team, right? Here was the most frustrating thing about the, about this movie for me, which I loved, by the way. 
And, and I think it's still one of the greatest superhero movies of all time. But the one thing that frustrated me, and I understand it, it was a necessary thing to do, but it was Thor. Thor being basically useless for the entirety of this movie, except for, you know, there, there were bits and pieces there, and of course in the final battle, he absolutely had plenty to do with it. But at the same time, him being useless and scared and just kind of checked out, it's almost like a, a kind of a version of of survivor's guilt almost, maybe even some PTSD worked in there as well, where he's basically, he's got new Asgard, he's found a place for his people, and he's checked out. He's basically just drinking beer and playing video games. He wants nothing to do with anything. But they do convince him to come back because they say there's beer on the ship when Rocket comes to bring him back. And, and you know, that kind of works out. But at the same time, it was just frustrating because Thor, you know how powerful he is and you know how much he meant to the team in Infinity War. Without Thor, what happens in that battle? Did they even... Did they even get to the point where they even could almost try to stop Thanos? I don't think they could have without him. So to see him almost useless and, you know, basically cowardly at some times during this movie was tough. But then you say they kind of go in teams to go get the different stones in different locations. Like, you know, you've got Tony and you've got Cap. They go to New York, the set of the first Avengers movie to get some of the stones. And you've got, you know, Thor and Rocket go to Asgard to get the others. And then you've got Hawkeye and Black Widow. And I got to tell you, one of the first scenes in this movie that crushed me was that battle of, okay, who's going to lose their life in order to get this stone? And they both want to sacrifice themselves. So you see them actually fighting to see who's going to kill themselves. Think about that for a second. You you don't see that. You know, the, the nobility there of neither one wants to have to see the other one die. Not only tells you how much they care about about each other, but how much they care about the grand scheme of things and what this all means to everyone. And of course, we see that Natasha ends up being the one that sacrifices herself because, you know, she he's got a family and she wants to make sure he can get that family back. I mean, when that phone rings later on in the movie, when they finally do undo everything, and that phone rings and it's his wife. And you see the emotion on Hawkeye's face. It's incredible, man. It's it's another. It was another mo- moment that really choked me up. Because it, not only does he get his family back, but he, again, again, he can't thank his friend enough for sacrificing herself so he can have this moment. And he can have his family back. So that, that just absolutely 100% crushed me. To my very core. Now, I, I'm not. I'm not going to shy away from the fact that I cried several times during this movie, and, and absolutely at the end I cried. But we won't get to the end yet. We'll we'll, we'll save that because I know that there's debates there. And my wife and I actually had an interesting conversation about that after the movie was over as well. But so you see them, and there's a little bit of a hiccup there with getting some of the stones. As a matter of fact, Tony and Cap have to go back even further and there's a chance they might not be able to make it back but hey they could steal more pim particles while they're there and then tony runs into his dad and that's another emotional moment there because his dad talks about how much he loves his kid that isn't even born yet and that is tony so and you see a moment with cap and peggy there as well when they go back to the past to steal the the stone from this from this shield facility so there's there were so many rises and falls in emotions in this movie wasn't there and there was so much action, too. And there were some funny moments, too, like Cap having to fight himself 
I thought was really cool and a really funny moment. At the same time, the interactions between Tony and almost everybody. Thor certainly had his funny moments, too. Even though that it was it was really frustrating. It's like Ragnarok opened the door for Thor to be funny from here on out and not be so serious all the time. And not just be, you know, the god of thunder and the, the champion of Asgard. No, he's a funny dude now. And we get to see that play out throughout the rest of this movie as well. It's just it's a different role for him. But he gets an emotional moment with his mom as well because, you know, his mom dies. And when he goes to get goes back to get the stone, she's still alive and he sees her and he gets to have a moment with her. And she doesn't want him to stop her from dying either. And again, the nobility factor there is off the charts. But there was just there was so many great moments leading up to this. And then you get to the moment where Thanos finds out What's going on? And how he finds out is really super interesting because we got future Nebula and past Nebula who are in the same place, which I thought was the one mistake that they made in this plan, was not thinking about that. Nobody thought that Nebula is part of a network and the networks are shared and the consciousness is shared. And that's how Thanos finds out because he thinks that Nebula has failed him in, in in the past and that she is she he's going to basically try to fix her or torture her, you know, either way. And then she plays a recording of future Nebula and he finds out everything that's gone on from his death, from them trying to get the stones. He's like, oh, cool. So they know where they are. I'll just let them get them and I will go back to their time and I'll just get them all then and do what I need to do. And I'll do it because he hasn't remember he hasn't done it yet in the past. So that's how Thanos comes back into play. And I thought that was brilliant. You knew it was going to happen, but you didn't know how it was going to happen. And when he flies that entire ship through that pin particle opening there, it was like, and it busts through the ceiling, which how did nobody hear that? How did nobody hear a giant spaceship blow through the top of their building before their building gets blown into pieces? I realized that they had stuff to do, and that they were a little busy at the time. But you think somebody would have heard that, right? And at least, you know, kind of would have said, hey, what's that? Before they just went ahead and got all blown to bits. Now, I do want to talk about the final battle a little bit. Because when everybody walks through, when you find out everybody's really back, and I mean everybody, and we get to see that final battle play out. First of all, Scarlet Witch, bad ass moment against Thanos. She takes Thanos one-on-one and beats the living hell out of him. I mean, Thanos gets the best of her eventually. But man, does she get some licks in. And when she is angry, she gets angry. And that was just a huge moment. And then, of course, you've got Captain Marvel who basically obliterates that ship when she gets back. And then you see that moment where they're trying to get the gauntlet the hell out of there. So Thanos can't, you know, Thanos can't get his hands on it and they can, you know, do what they need to do with it and destroy it or take the stone and they need to take the stones back to their time too, by the way. So then you get to the point where, okay, somebody, so, so Captain Marvel, if memory serves me correct, gets this and they're like, okay, she's powerful, but how is she going to get all the way through there? Then you see all the amazing women of Marvel Cinematic, of the Marvel Cinematic Universe come up there and they've got her back. They even say, she's got, we've got her back. And you just see the women just cutting a trail through these Thanos minions. It is unbelievable 
how much we see the women kick ass in this movie. And it's almost like there's the future right there. You've got Black Panther and the Wakandans. You've got Captain Marvel. Scarlet Witch now looks even more a part of the future than we could have possibly realized because we get to see a future. Spider-Man is a huge part of that as well because he has the gauntlet at one point too. So the one, and, and of course the biggest bummer of all in the movie was when, was when Iron Man dies, sacrificing himself. You know, he's the one that eventually ends up getting the stones from Thanos. He does the snap and all of a sudden Thanos and all of his cohorts dusted all of them. It was almost an even bigger, you know, mass dusting than the last one. If you want to think about it, because there was a lot of little minions down there, wasn't there? There was a lot of creatures that Thanos was fighting alongside. So, and the odds certainly weren't even in this battle either. So, and everybody kind of got their little piece, didn't they? Even though there was, it was every Marvel character you could possibly think of. Everybody got theirs, didn't they? We got to see everybody kind of do their thing a little bit. And then Tony dies, and it's just crushing because... You don't really know who's going to die, but you know it's coming, right? And you almost think it's Cap just because of what happens in the comics, and that's not what happens at all. It ends up being Tony. And and in that moment where, again, it's him and Peter. Peter's right there, and then Pepper's right there. And, man, her iron suit was amazing, wasn't it? That was another thing. I loved her suit, and we get to know that t- Tony made it for her when he was trying when, when he was there with his daughter, and his daughter was kind of playing around. With it, and he's like, "That's for mommy. That's a present for her." And then we get to see her actually using it. Loved that moment as well. So, and then you get, and then we've got Tony's funeral, which was super emotional, and everybody was there. Even the kid from Iron Man Three was there, all grown up. Who I will admit, I did not recognize at first. Looked like a totally different kid. So, I love that they brought everybody back. And then you see Happy is kind of like get him, you know, kind of kind of fill the role of not necessarily the dad role, but he's going to be there. For Tony's daughter now, which I think is amazing. And man, she's a strong kid already, isn't she? And then the moment at the end that I love is, okay, we got to bring all the stones back. Cap says, I'll do it, no problem. We're going to do that. So when Banner sends him back, they don't get him back right away. And of course, you've got Falcon and Bucky, and they're freaking out. They don't understand why he's not back yet. And then they look over, and there's an old man on a bench. It's Steve. He decided to just stay back there and live his life. And then we see him and Peggy dancing at the end. And, oh, that was my moment. That's what I wanted. I wanted him to ride off into the sunset with Peggy Carter. And it looks like that's exactly what happened. And that's where things end. No end credits, no mid credits, none of that. That is where it ends. And that's where it should end. Now, I know there's a debate on, you know, was that a happy ending? Did they really end up together and all this stuff? And you know what, damn it, they ended up together. My wife tried to plant this plant this seed of doubt in me too, where it's like, well, you don't know for sure that they end up together. Why didn't he say what the wedding ring was all about and all this stuff? And, you know, there's, there's articles and fans speculating, trying to retcon this. No, 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 no. Absolutely, they end up together. Steve gets his happy ending because after seeing Tony die, I need that happy ending, so don't you dare take that away from me. I'm getting my happy ending, damn it, and that's final. Avengers Endgame, absolutely 100% worth the wait, worth the price of admission, and an absolute celebration and culmination of everything 
that Marvel has built up to this point. And I know that Far From Home is going to be the end of this phase. This really felt like a great way to close it out. And congratulations to absolutely everyone involved over the years in this because you made it all work. You made it all make sense. It was all connected. And in the end, it ended up being beautiful. That's going to do it for my spoiler-filled review of Avengers Endgame. Up next, we're going to be talking about the Battle of Winterfell. Game of Thrones talk next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hi, this is Cass Anvar, Alex Kamal from The Expanse, and you are listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Stay tuned. It was the long night and the one that we've been waiting for. That's right, the Battle of Winterfell in the long night, Game of Thrones Season 8, Episode 3. Spoilers from here on out, and again, just like my review of Endgame a minute ago, I'm not really going to get into everything that happened in the episode because I really don't feel like that's that's necessary at all. You've probably seen it. It's broken records on social media and for ratings and stuff like that, so we're not going to go through every little thing. But I will say that, first of all, I want to talk about the whole darkness thing. I'm going to tell you right now, I watched this on my laptop, and it was fine. It was 100% fine. I could see what was going on. Yeah, it's going to be dark at times because, I mean, that's part of the realism of the battle. They show up at night. I mean, what did you want them to do? They're worried about White Walkers. You want them to grab a flashlight or something and just make sure that you could see? You already had, by the way, the flaming Dothraki swords that you could use courtesy of Melisandre. So, I mean, what do you want? You know, you could see, and by the way, wasn't that a killer scene, literally and figuratively? You've got the Dothraki, and they're the first ones to go through at the Night King's army, right? And you see them ride through, and all of a sudden, little by little, those swords get extinguished. And that was like that bone-crushing moment of, oh my God, we're all going to die. And as a viewer, you're thinking, oh my God, they're all going to die, which didn't make, which doesn't make sense, again, because this is the third episode, and there's no way that everyone's going to die Right? You know some people are going to die, but you know not everyone's going to die. But that moment really makes you think because the Dothraki, I mean, you want to talk about fierce warriors. They absolutely are. And they get just chopped to bits really, really quickly. We don't even get to see all that. But you know that it's like, whoa, if they took them down that easy, how? what are we going to do? And that's basically the look that was on Tyrion's face and on Sansa's face. It was like, okay, what are we going to do? What exactly we're we going to do? Actually, it was on everybody's face, if I'm being honest. So, it was one of those just crucial moments at the beginning of the episode. And then before you know it, the Night King's army is there. And you've got John; he's on, on one dragon, and Danny's on the other. And, you know, they're doing a pretty good job of mowing down the Night, the, the Night King's army at first. And actually, they're doing a pretty good job of, of fighting them off anyway the, in, in the second and third lines a defense. They're they're actually doing a pretty darn good job, and it turns out it's not super hard to kill these guys, right? So, and then you you've also got Bran, who's back there. You know the trap is set for the Night King. They think that he's going to come out and get him, right? And then you've got Theron that's guarding him with a few soldiers there as well. It just seems like everything's going a little too well, doesn't it? And they it, it, at one point. You've, you've got Danny who's supposed to light the ring around the castle and can't do it because she's a little preoccupied with the Night King and his dragon, by the way, so she can't light it. So the, so the Night King's army is getting a little bit further. The White Walker's getting a little bit further in 
than you expect. And, and it just looks like the battle takes a really bad turn really quickly, right? I mean, there's one thing you, you think Brienne's going to die. You think Samuel's going to die at one point, And they don't. It seems like everybody at one point or another, you think they're going to die. I thought Jamie was toast. A couple of times, but too, by the way, and, and he ends up surviving too. And it was funny how Melisandre, and, and even though Davos wasn't really that thrilled to see her, very surprised and maybe even a little bit annoyed to see her, she kind of saved the day, kind of holding off the Night King's army, at least at first anyway, until they figured out I get past that ring of fire. So she was one of the, she saved the day at one point during this, which I thought was super, super interesting. And she sure as hell wouldn't be the last woman to save the day in this episode, would she? And we do get to see a lot of really crazy moments. You've got that giant, right? Remember the giant White Walker that's kind of just clubbing everyone? And I got to tell you, man, Lady Mormont, how about that? How about the fact that she basically takes on this thing by... First of all, you think she's dead, too, by the way. You think Lyanna's dead. She is not. She comes back. She's covered in blood. She comes back up, stabs that friggin' giant in the eye, and kills him. And that was an amazing moment. Bella Ramsey, well done. Not just in this episode, but even before that. This is a character that wasn't even supposed to be in this many episodes. So she earned it, man. She earned that moment. You want to talk about going out with a bang. The Lady Mormont absolutely did that. And then you've got, uh, there's another point where it looks like they're being overrun, and here comes Arya with her new weapon and starts mowing down White Walkers, right? And then things get a little, you know, get a little bad for Arya. She's kind of stuck, and she's really tiptoeing. It was really reminding me of Jurassic Park, right? When they're trying to avoid the raptors and these little subtle things. She even throws a book at one point to throw them off and try and run away, and I mean, that works at first, right? And then she gets saved by the hound. It was really, really crazy how that worked out, right? So it, it's it's funny how you, you had these pairings, right? You never would have expected in a million years earlier on, earlier on in the seasons of Game of Thrones, right? And then, But everybody kind of really did come together for the greater good at one point, right? And then you've got, you've got Danny and John. You know, the, there was certainly awkwardness there with the revelation, of what happened in the last episode of who John really is and the, the battles with the dragons in the air were really cool. And then you get to see the Night King bring out his dragon and there's dragon battles going on. And it was absolutely insane. And and I got to tell you, the death that I think hit me the hardest, though, I know I'm bouncing around here, but I got to get to this while I'm thinking of it. I think the one that hit me the hardest was Jorah, if I'm being honest. I know that there are plenty of, of big characters that die, but but Jorah has just been there for Danny from day one, right? And he fought so valiantly to keep her alive, too. There was one point where he got stabbed pretty good a couple of times, and he just would not go down easy, would he? He saves her life on a number of occasions, and especially on this night. So that when Jorah goes down and you see Danny and she's sobbing while he's basically dying in her arms it was that was the one that really really got me but then let's talk about the night king let's talk about this for a second a couple of things and i want to talk about the whole, the whole pre-death thing because you know he dies in this you've seen it i've said this is full of spoilers so you know what are we going to do here so before he even goes down it looks like they've got things figured out right 
They, they've got his army is really not much of a problem anymore until it is when he raises the dead once again. And now all their friends that died are coming to kill them now, too. And that was the crazy part. Right. And then when people start popping up out of the crypts, you think they put everybody in the crypts to be safe. And then all of a sudden they start popping up. And now those new White Walkers, by the way, let's call them new White Walkers because that makes sense. Right. So we get to see them start popping up, and all of a sudden things aren't safe there now. So then you've got Sansa and Tyrion, who Tyrion thinks he should be up there fighting, and they are giving him a lot of polite reasons why he shouldn't be. So they're hiding, and which is, you know, you can't blame them for, right? But then Sansa and Tyrion kind of make the decision that, all right, we're going to go out there, and we're going to try and do something about this. It was just one of those looks, you know? Like in any good war movie, you see two characters just give each other a look, when they know things are bad, but they have to do something about it. And that's what was about to happen until the big thing happens. The, the moment that probably made you jump out of your chair and cheer. And that is when, you know, the Night King, he's getting to Bran. They've mowed down any resistance at this point. Theon, who has really fought valiantly throughout all this and kind of earned Bran's respect, back I think not but brand's a cool customer though so it's not like he've really lost it but he really earned his I mean he definitely got to die with honor that's for sure so he he tried man he absolutely tried to hold him off and then it looks like the night king is going to get to brand right and he's going to kill him there's no ifs ands or buts about it he's going to just mow him down right there in his chair until Arya jumps out of nowhere and you think she's going to die, right? Because, you know, the Night King's got her in, like, the choke slam position. And then she does the whole drop the knife thing and catches a blow and just stabs him right in the stomach. And it was one of those moments where you jump up and you fist pump, right? I saw a video from, like, a bar or something on Twitter. I wish I could give proper credit, but I don't remember what Twitter user it was. Where you, it's a bunch of people watching the episode in what looks like a bar. And when that knife goes into the gut... Everybody just starts cheering and jumping up and down. You see drinks flying up in the air. It was a huge hero moment. And Arya, again, so deserved that moment. And then, like they said, remember, once the Night King went down, everybody went down. So all the all the armies just kind of dropped. They died. I mean, they just dropped right there. So at that point, it was over. And it's just, it's, and everybody who survived, because it looked like Jon Snow, he was going down at that point, right? And again, everybody was starting to get overrun, and the Crips are getting overrun now. It looked like this was it. This was what was going to get, they thought they had him, and now that, and now it's over. They're going to lose it. And that just was the biggest moment, I think, maybe ever in Game of Thrones, right? Am I overstating that? Is this the biggest moment? Because I really think it is. Plus, you don't really think the Night King's going to die in this episode. I really wasn't sure that that was going to happen. I thought that eventually, yeah, they're going to kill him. But in this episode, episode three, I did not see that coming. So there was a lot of very meaningful deaths, too, in this episode. There was a lot. I mean, the fact that Samuel survived, I love that. Because when he almost died, I'm like, he's one of the ones where... If he dies, also Ghost. I, I needed to make sure Ghost was okay, and, and it looks like I found a clip where Ghost is okay, too, by the way. so I, But Samwell was one of those ones where, like, if Sam dies, I'm going to be pissed. That was one on my list where I was not going to watch Sam die. That was just not going to happen in a million years. But there are a lot of very important characters that aren't moving on. But I love the fact that now the Night King's gone, 
that whole thing's over. You know, you got to pick up the pieces, and then you know Cersei's the next target, right? Or maybe she thinks they're the target. Either way, but she's the one now that has to be dealt with, and I cannot wait for that. It's been an amazing final season of Game of Thrones. I hope you're enjoying it as much as I am. That's going to do it for my spoiler-filled recap slash review of The Long Night, The Battle of Winterfell. Up next, going to talk quickly about a new Guardians of the Galaxy animated series arc. Yeah, we'll talk about Black Vortex next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is David Sobolov, voice of Grodd on The Flash and Drax on Marvel's Guardians of the Galaxy. And you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Like I said, it's been a big week in geek taming, and time to talk about something we haven't talked about in a while, actually. The Guardians of the Galaxy animated series has an amazing new special. It's going to be starting this Sunday at 9.30 p.m. on Disney XD. It is Mission Breakout. Yes, just kind of like the attraction that they have. And it's for Black Vortex. That's the actual name of the story inside Mission Breakout. It's going to be a four-parter starting on Sunday, May the 5th, and continuing on Sunday, May the 12th. So I'm going to give a little spoiler-free review of the entire thing here. Now, basically, the premise that was released by Marvel, so this is not a spoiler, Guardians are desperate to escape the Collector's collapsing ship. If you've been watching the series already, a little bit of a spoiler for for what's already happened on the series in these previous episodes. Now, they jump into a Black Vortex mirror, and they kind of find themselves separated and trapped in strange new worlds. Now, when I say strange new worlds, and this is something I will talk about because I think it's one of the things that makes this so special and cool, is that the Black Vortex is a little bit of a prison and it gets inside your head. It can take any form it wants sort of thing. Almost like, you know, the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man when, when, when Ray chooses it in Ghostbusters. You know, that's the form that they chose. Except these forms are not chosen for them and what we get are a ton of different animation styles. Like there's one where Gamora's trapped in like... Uh, in an old school animation like Disney princess type thing with cartoon bluebirds singing and stuff like that. And they think she's a princess and it's hilarious. And then you've got all these other things like stop motion CG. There's even a claymation at one point. You've got different other different types of CG. You've even got a black and white that I want won't spoil. Drax gets stuck in a motion comic. And there's one character in there that is... Very, very familiar, but with a twist. And that's the other thing you will get in this, is you'll get some characters that you recognize, not just from Guardians, but from yeah, maybe a couple of other Marvel universes as well, and worlds inside there that you'll recognize with a little bit of a twist. Everything has just a little bit of a twist to it. As a matter of fact, there's a big twist involving Groot in these episodes too. And one thing that's going to surprise you, Quite a bit. I mean, you want to talk about flipping the script. This is really, really interesting. So I think that the the stuff that happened with Groot, even though there wasn't a whole lot of it, was some of my favorite stuff about these episodes. It was hard not to love the motion comic, though. And I loved the animation style there. And just the way it was drawn and presented was absolutely amazing. Then, of course, my favorite one was 8-Bit. It's just, it was I love 8-Bit. You know, I'm a sucker for 8-Bit graphics. And we get to see that a little bit. In this as well. And basically it's the team not just trying to find their way out of the Black Vortex, but trying to find each other as well. And it's one of those things where you find out, you know, just how tight-knit this group is and how much they sort of need each other and how much they sort of feed off of each other, actually. So it's really, really cool to see this come to life in this four-part series. But I gotta tell you, it gets kind of intense at certain points 
in these episodes. And it's like, you know, hey, no wonder it's on at 9.30. This is intense stuff. But the Guardians of the Galaxy animated series has always been really, really good in its storytelling and finds a way to differentiate itself from the Marvel Cinematic Universe movies, which is something I feel like you really need to do. I mean, as popular as Guardians has gotten over the years with the Marvel Cinematic Universe, that's one of the reasons we're getting this animated series in the first place. So to be able to separate themselves like that from it, I think was really, really important. And then you've got great individual performances by, you know, Vanessa Marshall as Gamora. And you've also got, you know, David Sobolov as as Groot. I mean, excuse me, as Drax. So, and, and they just get their chance, all of them individually, get their chance to really, really come come out and show what they can do on their own. And I mean, when you, and Will Friedle is always hilarious as Star-Lord. And Trevor Duvall actually does. There's a specific part that Rocket has to go through. And, and it's really, really amazing to see. You, you kind of get to see Rocket out of context a couple times here. And I think that Trevor did a, an amazing job of bringing that to life. And Kevin Michael Richardson, his group, gets to do something different as well. And I'm, I'm really trying not to spoil it because it was one of the most amazing parts about this whole thing for me. It was just top to bottom. This whole thing was done so, so well. You almost didn't want it to end because you wanted to see what world that they would come into next and how they would kind of navigate it and deal with it, because there's stuff that's trying to kill them and all of these different things that they're in, and then you're trying to decide, well, is it real? Is it not real? Could they really die here? Could they not die here? And and that's the question that you, that you ask as you're watching this, and there is a really big cliffhanger at the end of Part 4 that's going to make you stick around for the rest of the season of the Guardians of the Galaxy animated series, and... and what what happens there? It's a game. First of all, it's a game changer. I know that that's cliche, but th- in this case, it really, really is going to change things going forward. And who knows where the show is going to go from here? It's almost like a new beginning in a certain respect. So I'm really, really psyched to get more Guardians of the Galaxy animated series. And this Black Vortex arc for Mission Breakout was really, really neat. We got to see them try to break out of one of the most epic and unique prisons I've ever seen, really. And and the different animation styles, some of them actually a first for Marvel as well. It was just really, really neat to see and how they put their spin on some classic animation styles like the like the claymation. I thought was really cool. And this isn't something that you see every day. And I love different and I love seeing things put get their own spin put on them and, and get to do something a little bit of fresh and new. And I'm really glad that Disney and Marvel got the chance to do that with this Guardians of the Galaxy animated series because it's so well done, and I'm glad they got the spotlight for this. So make sure you're checking that out. Sunday, May the 5th at 9.30 p.m., that's when it's going to start, and that's going to be a two-parter that night, actually. And then the next part is going to start out on Sunday, May the 12th at 9.30 p.m. on Disney XD. That's going to do it for my spoiler-free review of the Guardians of the Galaxy Mission Breakout Black Vortex animated special. Up next, we still got a few nerd news items to take care of, and we'll do it on the Dan and Nerdy Podcast. Hey, this is voice actor Roger Craig Smith, and you guys are listening, you lucky people, to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. And we're back. It's one of the most talked about trailers for all the wrong reasons. It's time for nerd news, and you have to know that I'm talking about the Sonic the Hedgehog live-action trailer 
the debut this week, and it's almost, I mean, honestly, it's almost not even worth bringing up at this point, given the news that, that's come out, but I, I do want to talk about it a little bit because, I mean, the the teeth and the the hair, it's like, what are we doing here, guys? And then you've got you've also got the shoes. The look of Sonic just didn't look good. And I know that they were going for a more realistic look. It just didn't play off for me. It was creepy and weird and almost the stuff of nightmares, if we're being honest. And and I know that, you know, you saw those leaked photos and you're like, all right, it's just a leak. Maybe they'll change it because, you know, fans didn't respond very well to the leaked photos either. So it took until the trailer for them to realize, wow, people really don't like it. No, no, we don't. We absolutely don't. And I mean, as far as the trailer goes, it was Gangsta's Paradise as, as a backdrop was weird. I know that music doesn't mean a whole heck of a lot, especially in a first trailer. But I mean, it just it, it didn't fit because it didn't seem like that was the vibe that was going on in this trailer, unless 90s is what you were going for. But then you don't give us the nostalgia either. It's the whole fish out of water thing again, where Sonic's from another planet, and they're trying to find out what the heck he is and who the heck he is. And that's basically the basis of Dr. Robotnik coming in, who's played by Jim Carrey. And it's basically Jim Carrey being Jim Carrey, just as Dr. Robotnik. And there's nothing really wrong with that, because it that if anything makes sense, it's that at this point. And actually, the final reveal of Dr. Robotnik at the end, I don't mind it. I know it's drawing a lot of criticism, but I mean, what did you kind of expect? That's pretty much what I thought he'd look like in the first place. So if anything went right in this trailer, I think it was the reveal of Dr. Robotnik. That's kind of what I expected. I don't know what anybody else was expecting. Maybe you wanted to be a little a little more chubby. I don't know. But I mean, that's exactly kind of what I thought we would get, you can only make that but so cartoonish because, I mean, it's still a guy. So, I mean, what do you want? And, I mean, I, I don't know what James Marsden's role is, is his his character, Tom. I really don't know what his role is. I don't think there was anything wrong with Ben Schwartz's Sonic the Hedgehog voice. I thought that was fine, but the, the look was so whacked out that you can't really get past it. And then we get the statement. I mean, what was it, like 24 hours after the trailer was actually released, you have director Jeff Fowler that comes out and basically says, look, I hear you. You don't like it. We get it. As a matter of fact, here's a quote from the tweet where he says, you aren't happy with the design and you want change. It's going to happen. Everyone at Paramount and Sega are fully committed to making this character the best, best is capitalized, he can be. Now, while that's great, and I'm glad that they're going to go ahead and fix this because it, I mean almost 50% of this movie, if not more, is what Sonic looks like as far as what fans are, how fans are going to want to go see this movie. And I don't care if you're making the movie for kids, adults, nostalgia, whatever. If Sonic doesn't look right and looks weird, it's not going to work. It's bad enough that Detective Pikachu was trending at the exact same time that the Sonic movie trailer came out because it was fans going, look what they did. What was wrong with what they did? And Pikachu looks exactly how you would think he should look in the movie being transferred and adapted into live action from a video game into a movie. That's what it's supposed to look like. The others also look pretty darn good in that. And the Pokemon look good in that trailer as well, not just Pikachu. 
And then you look at Sonic and you go, what are you guys, what were you guys doing? I know I've always said that you can't beat someone by doing exactly what they're doing. This is one of those instances where they probably should have done exactly what they did, what the people did with Detective Pikachu. Because, I mean, just going for the realistic look, this is why you don't do that. This is a perfect example of why you don't try to make something more realistic in this particular instance. Because it looks weird and it's not good. Now, there's no word on whether or not they're going to move the release date or not. They probably should. Because the last thing any fan wants, any real fan anyway, is to put excessive strain on animators who are probably already worked their ass off on this movie to put this together. And now they're going to have to go back and change probably a lot. This is not going to be some small change because of the style of animation that they're going with here. This is going to take a lot of time to render. And we don't know what they're changing yet. Are, are they are they changing the teeth? Are they changing the eyes? I don't know. I mean, at this point, I'm also wondering how much of a difference it's going to make because if this was your baseline, I don't know where you're going. I will definitely give this movie a chance. And I don't know when we're going to see another trailer. I don't want to see anything else until we get a finished product of what Sonic is going to look like because until you get that, I don't think fans... There's going to be a lot of fans that aren't as forgiving as I am I guess that that will give anything a chance even if it looks bad in a trailer there's going to be a lot of fans that are going to say nope see ya and they are not going to come back to this project if you can't get it right when you say you're going to correct it so we'll have to see where that goes speaking of trying to get things right apparently Marvel is going to have a Ghost Rider solo TV series coming to Hulu this according to Variety and here's the thing Gabriel Luna is going to be returning as the Ghost Rider. So I know what you're thinking. Oh, okay, so it's a continuation? No, no, no. Apparently, the show will be a completely new iteration and not connected at all to Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. I'll get back to that in a second. Now, it will still be Robbie Reyes, according to all indications. Now, here's the problem with this. It didn't really work with Ghost Rider on Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., did it? Or at least I didn't think it did. I'm not saying Gabriel Luna didn't do a good job. All I'm saying is, is that the two things together didn't work in unison, I didn't think. It was not one of my favorite parts of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. that season. And you get to see, what, the Ghost Rider, you know, gets transferred a couple of different times during Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., so that was a weird thing that they did. So I understand why you wouldn't want it to be connected, but at the same time, can you just kind of pretend it didn't happen? at this point, and do a whole new thing. It would be different if you were doing something that was before the events of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. That would make sense. Or even way after the events of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. if you wanted to really go that route. But to just go, nah, nope, didn't happen. Doing something all new. I'm not sure you can really do that. I, I, I Again, this is one of those things where I, I hope it works out. But it just seems like they want to have their cake and eat it too. It's like, yeah, we thought Gabriel Luna did a good job, but that story in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. didn't really work for us. So we'll just take Gabriel and we'll forget about the rest. You can't unsee something as a fan. Okay, so you're asking a lot of fans to just forget what they saw on Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Or you're, you're betting that they just didn't watch it at all, I guess, which is even kind of more of a slap in the face because, you know, S.H.I.E.L.D. has actually rebounded pretty nicely from the whole Ghost Rider thing. So... I, I don't know how that's going to work out. I really hope it's great because I've been waiting for a Ghost Rider TV series 
for a while. I was kind of hoping it would come to Netflix. Hulu's where we're going to go because, you know, Marvel and Netflix just don't get along anymore. They're not really working together anymore. So I, I think that this could absolutely work. Don't get me wrong. I just think it's hard to ask fans to just unsee that whole thing. Quickly, on a little bit of a somber note, I wanted to touch on the fact that Peter Mayhew, of course, Chewbacca from the Star Wars movies, has passed away. He passed away on April the 30th. We found out a few days later an announcement was made by his family. And think about how important Chewbacca was in those movies. And just the chemistry between he and Han Solo on screen was so important to one of the reasons why I loved Star Wars. I'm not going to speak for any of you, but this is one of the reasons that I loved Star Wars. I mean, laugh it up, Fuzzball. is one of the best. It's one of those things that, that'll come out. Just a natural conversation when you're, when you're joking around with your friends. And maybe you've got a hairy friend. You laugh it up, Fuzzball, sort of thing, right? So it, it's one of the quotable lines from Star Wars. Not one of the most quotable, but certainly a quotable one. And there's, there were so many important moments like when he's gathering up C-3PO, when C-3PO is blown to bits and he's carrying him in the backpack. And just there's been so much stuff that's been inspired by Chewbacca, and he's such a huge part of the fandom. And Peter Mayhew was such a delight of a human being for fans at conventions and was always just... He always embraced the fact that he was Chewbacca, and that's something to be proud of. And that's not something that every actor does when they have a, you know, just iconic role like that. Sometimes you want to branch out, you want to do other things. And I'm sure Peter did as well. But he embraced this so much and loved the fans so much that he's just going to be sorely missed. And so, you know, of course, our thoughts go out to the family of Peter Mayhew. And as Star Wars fans, I just say, Mr. Mayhew, thank you so much. And we'll see you someday again in a galaxy far, far away. That's going to do it for Nerd News this week. Up next, going to be talking about the Tolkien movie. Get the scoop on that with director Dome Karukoski. That's up next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Matt Ryan from Constantine City of Demons, and you are listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. I know how much everyone's looking forward to diving into the world of Tolkien when it comes out on May the 10th. Going to be doing something special with Fathom Events as well, but we'll get to that in a second. Because right now, we have the director of Tolkien. It's Dome Karukowski. Dome, how you doing? I'm doing wonderful. As, as wonderfully as I could dream to do. Now, it's, it's funny because, Dome, you just came off of making a biopic, actually. So what made you want to jump into another one like Tolkien? Well, it, it was intriguing. I, I got the script before I, the previous biopic was the film about Tom Finland, an iconic gay artist, and um, I got this script, uh, or that script, not this one, but the script, that, the draft at that point of Tolkien, when I was just about to finish Tom of Finland, and uh, it was unrelated to Tom of Finland, because I had already met Fox Searchlight uh, earlier, uh, based on my previous older films, and I was, my first reaction was like, oh no, not another biopic, but I am a Tolkien fan, so I read it, and it's not really... Well, it's intriguing, my first reaction of thinking that, that, you know, from cradle death story, but it wasn't. It was, they had, the writers at that time had already narrowed the story into this beautiful coming of age, coming of age story with friendship and love. So it was, it was quite diff- different. And, and then, you know, I met Fox Searchlight and we kind of hit it off in terms of how the film, what the film should be. be, be. And then I started rewriting and reshaping the story uh, into what we now have and so it's actually 
it's, it is biopic and there are some similarities, but it's still quite a different story in that sense. I think in Tom of Finland, you have to be more, even more a fan of the iconic images mm. to experience all the emotions. Where in this one, I think, even though if you're not a Tolkien fan, you can explore, express, uh, ex- uh, enjoy the story of friendship and love and creation that he has. Oh, that's excellent. Now, I know you said in other interviews and just a couple seconds ago, actually, that you were a Tolkien fan before you started making this movie. So how much more did you learn about him while working on this project? I think the surprise was that as a to- I started reading them as, you know, the books at the age of 12 and 13, and they, they were very important to me because I was, uh, I was a loner. I was an outsider at that time. Uh, I was growing without a father whom I got to know later in my life. And I was being bullied, so I was quite miserable, and and those stories became very instrumental to me, who I am, because I then I jumped on playing the Dungeons and Dragons board games, and you know, and kind of in, in the board games when you have a campaign or a rope, you're creating your own stories and your own you know fantasies. And then I think for me, when I read about his life at that era, the realization that he actually experienced in a way the similar emotions. You know, he was growing without a father, he became orphaned, he was an outsider needy friends and he wasn't bullied but um but i think like that struck me that was something that was really surprising and and understanding and that i could relate to some of his own experience that he uh felt in life at the same age that i was experiencing him and i think that was really surprising for me how much are we going to see throughout the movie of course i don't want you to spoil anything but how much are we going to see how much the characters that we see in the lord of the rings books and in the movies and in the hobbit how much are we going to see that that was influenced by his own life actually because that seems like it's a big part of this it is it is but you can't say it's 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 influenced of course as artists kind of use a lot of elements in or from their own experiences and i think that when i read about this era i understood and hadn't read the Silmarillion, having read, you know, almost all of his books, you understand that he experienced a certain element of innocent souls, especially when they go to war, these innocent souls, then you're experiencing turmoil and destruction. And I think that's something very essential in his writings. And there are several other things. You know, if you look at the fellowship story, of course, the friendship story and the importance and, and the of companionship, you can feel that you can understand, okay, he, he's used those. It's not. It's not trying to claim. We're not trying to claim like, oh, these are direct inspirations. Mm-hmm. Like because I, he he also himself said that there are no direct allegories or elements. It's more like he shaped thoughts about his, his own experiences or the mythologies that he, that he's read. Uh, and of course, religion, especially the Lord of Rings, plays a plays a big part in his life. But. What we're going to see in the film is how his mind is being shaped, how his imagination is being shaped. Because that was something I always thought that if you are a Tolkien fan, and even though the script I received was a beautiful tale of friendship and love, it lacked kind of that, that why do I want to specifically want to watch a Tolkien film? Mm-hmm. And, and even, even though if you're not a fan, you want to see how a mind of a genius is being shaped. So that what we're going to see in the film, trying not to spoil too much, is how his imagination kind of flourishes. That the images that we see are not coming from the Lord of the Rings books or the Hobbit book or the Silmarillion yet. But, you know, it's kind of like he's sketching, kind of coloring his own world at the moment. Or if you talk about music, he's, he's finding instruments and voices and sounds and elements and feels. And he slowly and slowly creates his own theme, his own music of the Ainur uh, that he creates the world with. And I think that 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 is something you're going to experience in, when you watch the film. That's going to be really interesting. Talk a little bit about your star, Nicholas Holt, and why he was such a perfect choice for this role. Well, it was 
he was part of, there's one story and he says it's one of his weirdest weirdest casting meetings ever you know I, uh, Nicholas was both in my and, and the studio's kind of top, top list of actors and and he was actually my first meeting and I didn't have at that point I didn't yet have the script I wanted to show because I was still reshaping it and, and rewriting it um, so I thought okay let's just meet and talk about who we are and our experiences in life and, and I said we didn't talk about the film almost at all because I told him, I'm going to send you the script later, but you know, let's not talk about that yet. And I think what he's perfect is that he's at that age where he really blossoms and loves the camera. And he's, and then if I, if I look at him in, in his personality, there is this intellect in, and he's this warmth and playfulness uh, that I, I could feel that Tolkien had himself. So there are a lot of elements in him personally that I, I kind of res- resemble Tolkien, the actual Tolkien. And then when you're an actor and you're brought something like that, then you can build upon that, uh, the crack act. And, and I, I, after that meeting, you just felt, okay, it has to be Nicholas. And it was kind of a fight in terms of scheduling because he was shooting the X-Men and those right. things often might, might go like two months delay, two months delay. and. Mm-hmm. And we were quite ner- nervous about it, that whether or not something might happen, you know, that we have to change the actor because we were kind of in a production slate timing already. We had kind of decided, okay, let's shoot this fall. And they were still in Montreal. And, and th- I have to be thankful to Dark Phoenix of actually releasing him a bit early so we could even rehearse for the role. Excellent. We're talking to Domi Karukoski, who, of course, is the director of Tolkien, hitting theaters nationwide on May the 10th. Now, Domi, you know, a lot of the focus is going to be on Nicholas, obviously, but what are some other performances in the film that really stood out to you when you saw the final product? I think there's all that kind of the youthum that comes from the film. There's Lily Collins, who, who plays Tolkien's wife, Edith Brath. And when, you, when you're making uh, a film about a male protagonist, and it's very male-driven, male it's always difficult to kind of get a very layered and, and interesting female character. And I think Lily does a marvelous, marvelous job in it. Uh, and she's strong-willed, she's intelligent in it. And I think she's doing her, I haven't seen all of her roles, but I think she's doing a wonderful, wonderful, uh, strong role. And then there's the three other boys of TCBS, the, main, the adults, Patrick Gibson, uh, Dom Klingani, who's been, for instance, in Dunkirk, and uh, Anthony Boyle who plays perhaps uh, Tolkien's even closest friends. And these are, you know, guys in their 20s. They're doing their second or third film. And, and, and I mean, watching them on cinema, I mean, myself, it's, I, I want to be with that gang. I want to be part of that TCBS, that club. And I think these, uh, in 10, 15 years, they're going to be superstars, these men. You've gotten to do a couple of screenings of the movie already, actually. But on May 7th, there's going to be another special screening. And then Fathom Events is going to be allowing fans all over the country to experience a live Q&A that you'll be participating in for the Montclair Film Festival. And Stephen Colbert is going to be hosting that. How great is it to have a unique opportunity to present something like that on an even larger scale to an audience just after seeing the film? I think it's fantastic. I mean, Stephen Colbert Colbert is, Colbert is a huge Tolkien fan. And and I think, you know, he's fighting to be the biggest Tolkien fan in the world. And, and we're going to try to make it not too geeky so it's, so we don't start talking about Silmarillion and the Seven Brothers or Feanor, you know, and what does that mean to the society? Geeky is so what we do, Domi. It's okay. <laughs> I, know, I, know, I know, but, you know, there's a huge audience there who uh, I think with Stephen, that's going to be a one-on-one geek battle uh, later. <laughs> but uh, I think it's wonderful because he has the insight and he has the understanding of Tolkien, his work and how it's portrayed in the film. So I think we can really, really open up uh, through the discussion about kind of certain 
perhaps not so visible elements in the film and, and hopefully add to the experience. And, and I said, you know, it's always just really, really fun to meet another talking geek. And, and, and in, you know, it's been fantastic. We've had a lot of fan screenings where people have come dressed as elves and there was a couple of Gandalfs, which is, which is astounding. And then we, there was a woman who was dressed herself as Smaug as a dragon and wow. four hours four hours to do so and you are just you are just amazed it is it is the the, the amount of detail and 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 you know the amount of love on those screening also that through that the amount of love in the screenings have been something that you as a filmmaker are just like you know you, i couldn't wish for more i know honestly that's that's what you are like I hope the film works a lot for those who are not talking fast, but at the same time, at the same time, those who have loved the books or the movies, they are a huge, huge, important, you know, they are important people for me personally. Uh, and then those screenings have been great. Now, Dome, before I let you go, because I know how much of a huge fan you are, I have to ask you this. Now, what would you rather do if you got the opportunity? Would you like to direct another adaptation of a Lord of the Rings movie, maybe? Or would you like to work on an entirely new movie or TV series based on these Tolkien stories? Well, I have the bitterness of uh, wanting, of course, do the Lord of the Rings you know, films. And, and I was still in film school when Peter Jackson did it. And I think he did a really good job, but he beat me to it. So there's always this bitterness. <laughs> but, <laughs> of course. Um, but... Uh, uh, damn it! He got he beat me to it. <laughs> <laughs> but 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 uh, I think I think as an old when I've become older, I've I've actually Silmarillion has become my favorite book. You know, it used to be Lord of the Rings, but Silmarillion has become my favorite book. And you know, it changes. When I was in art school, Leif van Niggle, which is a very Kafkaesque story about art and creating art, was one of my perhaps even my favorite. And now Silmarillion and Silmarillion, if you would. If I would be allowed to do anything, I would probably do. Uh, if any, with all the money in the world, I would create a TV show out of Silmarillion, because there's so much there about you know. If you look at Numenor, which is the downfall of Numenor, which is a story of bad faith. I mean, wrong faith, and it's about corruption. You know, there's so many stories in there. If you look at this tragic story of Turin Turambar, which is basically a classical Aristotelian tragedy, there in that in that Silmarillion in the book, there are so many. Uh, layers of humanity in our society that I think it, uh, my gut feeling that it would be a TV show that I would want to see and definitely direct. I'm going to cross our fingers for that for sure, but for now, make sure you go to see Tolkien, which is going to be hitting theaters nationwide on May the 10th. If you want to get in on that advanced screening that's happening Tuesday, May the 7th, actually, through Fathom Events, find a theater near you, fathomevents.com. We hope to see you at both, actually. Go both times. That way you get to see this great movie twice. It's Tolkien director Dome Karukowski. Thank you so much for joining me this week. Thank you so much for having me and, and see you in the cinemas. I was so glad that I got an opportunity to talk about this movie, Tolkien, because, I mean, think about how much of an influence that J.R.R. Tolkien has had on, you know, geek culture just in general, not just fans of those books, but, I mean, the cosplays that you see at cons like Domi was talking about, and, and just decades and decades of fandom over the years and now we're getting a new Lord of the Rings TV series and hopefully he gets to work on the project that he gets to work on as well it's just amazing that you know you almost kind of take for granted at times how much J.R.R. Tolkien actually had an influence on geek culture and and how big things are 
today. I mean, and so I'm so excited to get to dive into his life and so excited to see Tolkien on May the 10th in theaters nationwide. And of course, you can always catch the Fathom Events special screening that's going to have that Q&A with Stephen Colbert. That is Tuesday, May the 7th. I actually really hope to see you at both. And thank you again so much to Dome Karukowski for joining me to talk about Tolkien this week. It's going to do it for this week's edition of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Of course, you want more information on the stuff that we've got going on? Easy. Go to downandnerdypodcast.com. Also, follow us on social media at downandnerdy757 on Twitter and Instagram and facebook.com slash downandnerdy as well. Remember, you never have to apologize for being a nerd, so let your fan flag fly and be good to your fellow nerds.